and I hit submit and I sat back and it said deleting 9,300 tweets, likes, and retweets. And my eyes got wide. I was like, what? And it is that hair stands up on the back of the neck, all the blood rushes out of your face. And I'm like, it's deleting everything, everything I've ever tweeted. Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. This is the show for ambitious startup founders who want to grow incredible companies and maybe not change the whole world, but just our little corner of it. And we do this for freedom, purpose, and relationships. I have a fun episode this week. It's a Rob solo adventure. I'm going to talk through a couple listener questions, tell a story or two to kick us off. This first story still kind of pains me. It's a, It goes under hashtag too soon, but... It reminds me of those times if you've ever written a database query and you forgot the where clause where you write update this column in the database to XYZ and then you forget to hit where and you you submit that clause and you wipe out a whole column in a table and you have to go back to a backup. It also reminds me of the time that uh, Derek will be fine with me sharing this, but this was probably 2014. Man, I'm even been late 2013, you know, we're like a year into drip. And Sunday night, my phone rings, which the first problem is we didn't call each other. It's all texting, right? So if someone calls me, I consider that they are being held hostage in a, uh, you know, an overseas prison somewhere or that something's on fire, that, our, that our, their house or our servers are on fire. I literally picked up the phone. I said, uh-oh, that's how I answered it. And it was, it was Derek just sweating bullets. And he said, do we have a backup of the database? And I said, yes, we have a backup. What happened? And he had done something like that where I think he forgot the where clause. It was in the credit card table. And I think we had 100 customers at the time. So, you know, it would have been bad, but not the end of the world. And basically, it had I think it had overwritten all the, the credit card numbers in the table or something like that. And we didn't even store the full credit card. Maybe it was, this, it was probably the Stripe customer ID that allowed us to charge it. And it was easily fixed and we lost no data, you know, but I remember that feeling when I've done that. I did it to an e-commerce website back in, um, must've been 2001. We had, this is before Shopify. So we had built a custom e-com shopping card and the whole website was all custom. And I did that to like the orders table or the order in progress table or something. And it's just the worst feeling because I, I hit this update. I forgot to say which row to update and it's taking way longer than I think it should to execute. And I'm like, why is this going? And about, you know, 10 seconds in, I'm like, oh, good Lord, how do I cancel this command? And of course, it's already done tens of thousands of rows of damage. And so that was another one. We had a database backup and refreshed it. But this most recent one, the reason I'm telling all these stories is a friend of mine, actually a couple friends of mine over the past year or so have started deleting old tweets. And I didn't really understand that. They set up a service that recurring, you know, goes back, X months and just deletes anything before that in their account. And I was asking one friend about it. And I said, well, why do you do that? And he said, you know, people will go back through your tweets. They'll go back 10 years, 12 years, and they'll dig something up and like quote it out of context, basically. And I just never wanted that to happen. And I felt like that was a little, when he said it, I was like, I, yeah, I guess, I guess I could happen, but it feels is a little overly paranoid, you know? And then of course, in the, in the past three months, I've seen this happen twice to notable people where someone just combs back through and says something. It's like, well, that's not really what I meant. Or cultural norms have changed. You know, there's all different types of things that can happen. The most recent one was someone built a 
copy of Wordle on iOS and just duplicated it. And now Wordle wasn't even original to the guy who built the web. I think, isn't there a web version? I don't play Wordle. I don't know. But who built the version that's popular right now? It, it's actually from some game show in the 70s or the 80s. Anyways, so this guy built a copy and there's this big hubbub and they go back through his tweets and they just roast this guy, right? And, and there's a big pylon because it's Twitter, of course, and there's a certain group of people who kind of just want to be angry about stuff all the time. So anyways, I sat, I've sat and watched these and kind of listened to the blowback and I thought, you know what? I don't say controversial things in general. Like that's just not, that's not my bag. That's not how I've built my personality or my brand and it's just not really who I am. So I've always been careful. So I have nothing that I'm worried about in particular, but I started tweeting in, I believe it was 2009. So you're talking 13 years. And I, over that time, I found out because I, I signed up for some software and it said I had like 9,300 tweets, likes, and retweets. So not actually that many, which I think shows a little self-restraint and also a few years where I completely quit Twitter uh, while I was building Drip. But all that said, I thought, you know what, what does it hurt if I go back and I delete even the first 10 years of my tweets, eight years, 10 years, I don't need them. They're these super ephemeral things anyways, right? These aren't like blog posts. And even that, I, I went back through robwalling.com and I had a couple hundred essays there and I read through a bunch of them and I was like, yeah, these don't hold up. These were really a point in time where dig was a big thing or social media or social news websites. It's not relevant anymore. And I even had pruned some of those a while back for both for SEO purposes, but just to get kind of old thinking off of the site. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to delete 6,000, 7,000 of these. I think it was the first 10 years basically in my history. I feel like since 2018, 2019, I've been tweeting more and I've been more consistent about it and really giving more thoughtful tweets, doing tweet threads and that kind of stuff. So I figured, hey, I'm going to keep that and delete the rest. There's no note. I don't see any downside to doing it, you know? So I go into this software. It was recommended and it was, it was good. It was fine to sign up. It's relatively inexpensive. And I start using it and they're, the date picker is a little finicky and I really struggled to get the first 10 years or eight years or what it was like eight and a half years or something. And eventually I did. And it's like, cool, those are all the tweets. And you have to go through this whole process of like downloading an archive and uploading into the, into the software. And I took a deep breath. It was like a Sunday afternoon and I hit submit and I sat back and it said deleting 9,300 tweets, likes, and retweets. And my eyes got wide. I was like, what? And it is that hair stands up on the back of the neck, all the blood rushes out of your face. And I'm like, it's deleting everything, everything I've ever tweeted. And I get this mini panic attack. I knew the date thing was finicky, but it's deleting everything. So I like go and look for a pause or a stop button. I email their live chat. Of course, they're in Eastern Europe. So it's like midnight, two in the morning or whatever it was. And I'm like, I hope that your bug is not deleting my entire Twitter stream, all my tweets from ever. And of course it did. And for like hours, I was in shock of like, all my tweets, they're gone. Before long, I realized it doesn't matter. And that's the, the shocking revelation is it just doesn't matter. That's how ephemeral these things are. No one noticed, not a single person pinged me, asked me about it, mentioned it, called it out. I had, de I deleted a tweet, I think from like less than 48 hours prior. And it just doesn't matter. And I think that the, there's a couple things. It, the interesting thing is that, man, it sucked. And it's kind of a funny story to tell in retrospect. But the other interesting thing is that I feel like if I deleted all my essays or all my podcast episodes, that would matter, 
because people go back and they listen to them and there's still value. If I deleted my book, you know, pulled it down from the internet, people still buy it, read that book. My first book, Start Small, Stay Small. And really, it continues to kind of reinforce this idea in my mind of like ephemeral things like social media and I guess the questionable value that I see in them. And of course, you're going to still see me on Twitter because that's what we do, right? And that's where we hang out. So all that to say, I don't know if there's a great lesson to take away from this other than it, it definitely made me think differently about not think differently, but continue to think about social media and really what, you know, what is the, what is the value of it? And knowing the value that the value is probably not in any type of long-term staying power. It's much more about that in the moment part of the conversation. My next topic before I get into some listener questions and comments is from a conversation I had with a founder who was asking me, how can I retain this person? And it is a like a senior dev at his company who I think is working part-time, like half-time, and, and is a contractor and works on other projects as well. And the founder was asking me, how can I motivate this person to come and work with me full-time? And he, he has a lot of options, right? And this is the gist of the message that I sent back to him. I said, I would ask what he's looking for. Some people are less motivated by money, and they might want one of the following control over what they work on, to have a big impact on the app they're working on, to know for sure the job is stable, to not have their spouse slash family be suspect that they're making a bad choice taking the job, more money, flexible working hours, to manage or not manage people, remote work, autonomy, potential for advancement, ownership along the lines of stock options or profit sharing. I would just ask him what's important and try to give that to him. And the reason I'm reading that here is when you're hiring or retaining, keep in mind that not everyone is motivated by money. I think in sales and on Wall Street, like in finance, traditionally people are motivated by money and that's why they are they gravitate towards those things. And, you know, I don't think it's a stereotype <laughs> as much as it's just the way it's mostly the way things are done. In a lot of other roles, money is lower on the totem pole than the list of things that I just mentioned. And in particular, I think in this competitive job market where everyone can be remote and, you know, anyone can now get a job at Google or Facebook and get this, you know, these really high salaries because they basically pay above market. If you're qualified, they pay above market rate in your city or town. Think as a founder of other ways to motivate. It's harder to do when you're first hiring because you don't know the person and it can be awkward to figure it out or ask. Retaining is different because oftentimes you've worked with that person and you kind of learn what their personal life looks like. And you realize that, wow, for this person, maybe working a four-day week, just working you know, 80% of the time is actually a huge benefit to them and that they will stick around a long time, a lot longer, if you are able to give them that flexibility. Or as I said, to know that their job is stable or to have a huge impact on the, the app that they are working on, have more control to manage or not manage people. There, there's all types of things. And I think we often get stuck on this transactionality of it, where it's salary and benefits. And it's kind of those things. As startups, we still have advantages over these larger companies. And it's not just remote work like it has been for the past decade, but it's you know several of these other things. It's the flexibility to be able to meet people where they are and where they want to be met and potentially retain some people who might otherwise leave, even if you don't have the money to pay them top dollar. My next topic is a topic submitted by a listener. And actually, I want to go back on what I said earlier about not losing anything by having my tweets deleted. The one thing that I lost is I tweeted a question. I'd said, Cortland Allen's coming on the podcast. What should we talk about? And there were about 25 or 30 
I think, pretty interesting topics. And we only covered maybe five of them in that. And then I've covered, I think, four or five since then. But there were still like 15 or 20 topics that I think could have made great conversations. And of course, they're gone now. So, but this was from that. I had already copied it into uh, our questions Trello board. And the question is, if you had to start a new SaaS today, what are all the criteria that the market or the app would need to have? And there's a lot, and this this varies by person, right? I remember sitting down with Derek Reimer when he was, it was before, shortly before he was going to start SavvyCal, and he had his list of personal requirements, you know? And I think some people, like if you're a true lifestyle bootstrapper and you just want to build a $100,000, $200,000 a year app and live the amazing four-hour workweek life, then your criteria will be different than someone who wants to build seven or eight-figure business and sell it for 30 or $40 million and get there in three or five years, right? The markets are different. The problems that you're going to tackle have to be different to have those different velocities. And so my list is from someone who has stair-stepped his way up into a place where I'm not going to build a small app anymore, right? If I were ever to build a, a SaaS again, I would not want it to be a six-figure ARR company because I've been there, I've done that, and it just wouldn't be interesting. It wouldn't be learning for me at this point. And even building a you know low seven-figure SaaS app, it would be retrotting old ground. And so for me, my criteria comes down to several of the following. And I'm, I'm trying to think, I don't know that this is an exhaustive list, but I jotted a few down coming in because this is, there's a lot of things to be thinking about. So the first thing, of course, is business to business, right? I wouldn't go to consumers. And I frankly wouldn't want to be marketing to like aspirational folks or like prosumers, just too much price sensitivity and churn is too high. And the next thing though, and what's super important to me is that it have some organic reach, meaning that people are searching for it. And this goes all the way back to the start small, stay small days, but not just that they're searching a Google for it, but there just is a market proven out for it because inventing a category or building out a market is not something I'm particularly interested in. If you think of Drip and how it started before it was an email service provider, it was actually an email capture widget and there were no other apps doing that. There was no sumo.com. There was no opt-in monster when we launched or maybe Optin Monster was WordPress and it launched within a few months of us. Like it was really right around the same time. So we were kind of like moving into this new category. And then what I realized is there was so much demand in this existing category of email service providers and that the big ones weren't able to provide for their customers. And that's why we basically moved into that space. Really within months of launching in 2013, we moved into that space. It was, it was very fast. And so I would want there to be organic reach because... I have the experience and the resources to be able to get in front of whether it's search volume or whether it's, you know, wherever else that reach is playing out. Another thing I'd be looking for is some kind of virality. It doesn't need to be, you know, have this incredible built-in viral loop like a social network. But when I look at, at Signwell, which is e-signature from Ruben Gomez, when I look at SavvyCal, which is a scheduling link software from Derek Reimer, they both have pretty neat viral loops of when I go to sign a document and I invite other people, they see this neat app that's easy to use and better than the other you know products on the market. So I like even that little bit of virality that is a natural spread. That's a really nice flywheel that in the early days, it isn't that important. But when you get to 100 customers, you get to 1,000, you get to 10,000, suddenly that loop becomes a chunk of growth. The next thing I, I would think about is I would not enter a space that didn't have expansion revenue. 
like notable expansion revenue because I want net negative churn in any app. You know, after building Drip and having net negative churn in that app, you get spoiled, frankly. And it is, I call it the golden ticket. I called it the cheat code of SaaS, but net negative churn is 100% an incredible lever in SaaS companies. And, you know, everyone else who's not SaaS is trying to get to recurring revenue and SaaS has built-in recurring revenue. We get that cheat code for free, but net negative churn is then the next level. It's where if I add zero customers this month, my company still grows. Negative one, negative 2% churn means you grow by one or 2% even if no one signs up. It's incredible. So that would definitely be something I'd be looking at. The other thing is I would at this point in my career, only leveraged an existing asset that I had. So whether that's an audience or my network or something to that effect, something I've built, I wouldn't start from scratch in just a brand new space like, oh, I'm going to go build software for construction managers these days because I have advantages that I can and should use. And in fact, all of my apps up until Drip pretty much didn't use any of my advantages. Maybe you could say Hittail did, but I remember having tens of, cu- of paying customers from my audience at the time, which is not huge. Everything before that were things like I had an ebook for bonsai trees. I had software for .NET developers. I had no .NET audience. Wedding website, SaaS. Have any reach into the wedding industry? Prentice Lyman Jobs, which was jobs for power line electricians. Like I was grinding it on on the marketing approaches, right? It was the SEO, the pay per click, the display ads, content marketing, some partnerships and integrations and affiliates. And you know, I was doing the the left brain, like know your funnel and, and crank on these apps, not using the the audience uh, or the personal brand. And then Drip was really the first one that my audience, I think, had a. I leveraged it well. And, you know, it obviously was in a different space and a more ambitious project, but it definitely showed in the early days with the growth that I had, you know, an asset to leverage. And again, I want to reiterate, if I was on step one of the stair step approach, some of these wouldn't apply. Maybe I don't have any assets to leverage. You know, maybe I don't need net negative churn because I'm just looking to build something that's going to make my house payment. Two more things that I would want in a, in a SaaS if I were to enter a space. One is little or no platform risk. Ideally, no platform risk, but really what I learned is almost everything has platform risk to some extent. Like you have web hosting providers and you're kind of on their platform if you think about it. You have sending email. I, I remember thinking that that email is essentially this open source protocol and that Drip would have no platform risk. And then you send, you know, 100 million emails a month through SendGrid and people start marketing them as spam. And so now SendGrid says, hey, we, you know, maybe need to shut down your account. So you have platform risk there. Or SendGrid's cool with it. And the email blacklists were like these bizarre, archaic 25, 30 year old things run by these curmudgeonly people who kind of could just add you if they felt like it. It was really this bizarre look into that whole space. And it's one I don't care to go back to. But there, if they put you on the blacklist, now your IPs are blacklisted and your deliverability goes in the tank. So that's where I'm saying it's tough to have a business with really no platform risk, but as small as possible is something that I would want because I don't want someone else in charge of my destiny. If I want to build a several million dollar company and have a lot of folks relying on it, for their livelihood. It's just not cool to wake up at night and think, you know, can this be put out of business overnight? And lastly, it's kind of a two-parter, but I would I would enter a space where there's not a ton of price sensitivity. And that would probably mean having a dual funnel where you have the on the higher end, you can charge five hundred, a thousand dollars, five thousand dollars a month to big players who come through Fortune five thousand companies who are real, you know, enterprise or mid market. And also 
you have inexpensive entry-level plans, whether you have a free plan or whether you have that $20 to $50 entry plan, much like an email service provider could have, much like per seat pricing works if you have electronic signature, if you have a CRM, where people can come in on a small team and, hey, it's 15 bucks a user, $30 but, you know, to get started. But by the time you have 10, 20, 30 people on that team, you get both expansion revenue, but you also had that lower end funnel where you can have a lot of customers. We see a lot of tiny seed companies come through and they are purely mid-market and enterprise where they only have high price plans. Those are great businesses too, right? And they can grow really fast because the contracts are so big. But ones that I see growing fastest, they have two funnels and they have the self-service low price funnel. Squadcast is a great example of this. They are studio quality podcast recording software in your browser. And you can think about the avatars that they have where they have the fly fisherman on the, you know, on the low end, who's really a hobbyist Dungeons and Dragons podcast, who five to 10 bucks a month is kind of where they want to be. Then you can think about startups for the rest of us, Tropical MBA, you know, any type of business or any podcast, certainly paying 50, 100, even $150 a month for my recording software is not that big of a deal. And then you have massive, you know, podcast studios or even radio stations who need to record remotely due to COVID and they should, can and should pay Five hundred to five thousand dollars a month, and so you think about that as that dual funnel as having the high end and then those low end plans. And the nice part about both of them together is a your revenue can keep growing each month, even if you're not landing these huge deals, because you do have the influx of the lower price plans, kind of like a more self service model. But b the more people you have using your product the more chatter is, the more of a brand you have. And the difference between having 1,000 and 20,000 you know, users slash customers, like active users, is in the Facebook groups, in the Slack groups, on social media, on Reddit, on Hacker News. People are like, yeah, I'm familiar with that. It's a great product. You just have so many more. But if you had 10,000 customers paying you $10 a month, aside from you know the obvious price sensitivity that I think would happen, as well as the, the high churn, 10,000 customers is kind of, they're kind of an army, you know, especially if you build a great product. And so that's where these dual funnels are quite exceptional. So those are several criteria I'd be looking at if I was building a new SaaS. Yours may be different or maybe you can borrow a few of mine. My next topic is actually a thank you email from a listener, Pavel Brzminski, who has, he actually offered some good advice and corrections uh, on my episode 581, Inflation for Founders, but he wanted to send in some kind words. He says, I should have included some nice words about your podcast. Startups for the Rest of Us has been absolutely transformational to my entrepreneurial journey. You may not remember, but I came to MicroConf back in 2015 and did a short attendee talk. I actually do remember it. The talk was about how I was starting Snap Projections from zero, then grew it to high six figures in a very competitive space and sold it to a public company within four and a half years for a life-changing sum of money. This would not have been possible without your podcast and additional resources you've created. I've always had tremendous respect for everything you do to support young entrepreneurs and enabling them to succeed. So big thank you to you. Cheers, Pavel. So thanks for the comments. As I say, I put these in a label in Gmail and they mean the world to me. It's a huge amount of, of my satisfaction these days comes from emails and stories like this of folks who say, your podcast got me through a hard time, whether it was a hard time in business or just a hard time personally. Look, I have podcasts and virtual mentors who don't know who I am personally, and, and I listen to them and they get me through these hard times. And so if I can be that for you, if I have been that for you, I consider it an honor, you know, and I consider it my life's work. It's my legacy at this point. My mission, which is now the mission of this podcast, MicroConf and TinySeed, is to multiply the world's population of self-sustaining independent startups. And I hadn't realized that I started doing that in 2005, 17 years ago. 
I just kind of started writing a blog and writing about entrepreneurship. I hadn't realized it when I wrote my book in 2010, started the podcast in 2010, started MicroConf in 2011. You know, these were just steps along the way. You just take the next step and there was no strategy behind it. It was just something that I was doing to, I think, meet other people and to hopefully help folks, but also just to get thoughts and ideas off my chest because I come up with these frameworks. I see mental models. I see what worked for me and it just seemed like the right thing to do to share them with people. And it would be boring if I didn't. You know, just running businesses for me is fine, but it's not as interesting as interacting with other interesting people. And it wasn't until maybe, you know, it was after probably right around the time I was leaving Drip, so it was three, four years ago, where I was like, you know what? This is the mission now. This is my legacy. It's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, right? It's to multiply the world's population of self-sustaining independent startups. So thanks, Pavel and... uh if you have a success story, I want to mail it in. Questions at startupsfortherestofus.com, as well as if you have any questions or any topics that you'd love to see discussed on the show, even just random little topic ideas or specific questions about your business. I'm actually running very low on questions at this point. And so they would likely be covered relatively quickly in you know, our next, our next uh, listener question episode or two. And that's going to wrap us up for today. Thanks as always for joining me this week. And I'll be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning. <laughs>